Um, we're going to spend some time now studying the Bible. By the way, my name's Dave. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, we spend time every week opening up the Bible and teaching the Bible, trying to learn what Jesus has for us in his word. Um, so if you can open up to the Gospel of John, we're in the Gospel of John, and we're kind of continuing John. We've been in John for a while, but this is kind of an exciting new series at the same time, right? Because we were working through John, um, and we came through John 10, and then it was Easter time, so we took a little break to jump forward to the end of the book, right? To look at the resurrection, the end of the story. Now we're resetting, and this coincides with the shift in focus in the Gospel of John, right? Chapter 11 is where now there's a focus on the last week of Jesus' life. So we're calling this New series, chapter 11 through 19, we're going to be in this for the summer, we're calling this the last words of Jesus. There's like a microscopic focus now on the last week of his life. Everything else was three years of his life, and then now it's like, boom, 11 through 19, focusing just on these last days, these last words, the last things that Jesus said in the week before he was crucified for us. So today, last words of Jesus, we're seeing a shift with what a lot of people call the final sign the raising of Lazarus from death. We're calling it Jesus versus death. Jesus versus death. Um, if you don't have a Bible, I can't remember if I said this already. It's page 897 in the Black Bibles. Uh, so we'd love for you to follow along there. 897 in the Black Bibles under, under the chairs if you don't have your own Bible. Um, we're going to look at this idea of how Jesus confronts death. And I wanted to start off by just asking you to try to remember the first time you have awareness of being confronted by death in the world? Can you remember that? Like first time maybe as a child, someone important died or maybe a pet died. Um, when I was seven years old, we had pet mice. Yes, isn't that weird? Yeah. They smelled really bad too, so I do not advise having pet mice. But anyway, we begged and begged and somehow my mom, who's very creative, gave in and was like, all right, cool, we can have pet mice. We had this cage and you can put cedar mulch in the cage to kind of make it not smell so bad but it still smelled really bad. Um, and so we eventually got rid of them. But while we had them, it was great fun. We enjoyed playing with the mice, and sometimes we'd take them out of the cage, and my sister and I would like sit on the floor and kind of make like a little, a little mini fence with our legs, you know, and let them run around. We'd kind of play with the mice, right? It was really fun. It was really exciting. Oh, y'all look so disgusted. I'm sorry. <laughs> I should have used a different illustration. But this was my personal confrontation with death, okay? Um, so I'm playing with the little mouse, and it's running all over the place, but it kind of like goes underneath one of our legs and starts to go under the bed, right? And so I kind of lean back to, to kind of try to grab the little mouse, but then he darts right back towards me, and I accidentally, like, kunk, I, I fell on the mouse. I was seven years old, and man, I just, I cried. I feel like, looking back on it now, like I cried for days. It was probably five minutes. But I just remember this horror of having killed my own little pet, right? I just squished him. It was horrifying. Um, and up until that point, I don't think anyone that had really mattered to me had died, right? Can you remember the first time you lost a pet? Maybe a goldfish, maybe it was a cat or a dog, maybe it was the first time for you, maybe it was confrontation with someone really close to you, right? Maybe a, a parent even, or a grandparent, or a sibling. Um, death is horrifying. Death is, I, I think, with a Christian worldview, not the way things are supposed to be. The way the Bible frames it is that death entered in because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And so now we live in this world of death. The question is, what are we going to do about it? And what is God's uh, belief about death as well? And so let's look at how Jesus confronts death in John chapter 11. We'll start reading in verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary 
and her sister Martha. So, a little background. These are close friends of Jesus. Verse 2, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. <laughs> they're, not, they're not quite getting what he's saying. They're like, if he's asleep, you don't need to go there to wake him up, right? He'll be fine. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They're saying, Jesus, this is, this is not good to get close to Jerusalem again, right? It's heating up. There's a conflict with the leaders in the capital city in Jerusalem, and they're saying we shouldn't go there. And he gives this little phrase about time in the day, right? Did you all notice that part when I read that, the 12 hours in the day and working? What he's saying is, I still have work to do, right? When the sun goes down, my work is done. And he's speaking figuratively, saying, God still has work for me to do. It's, time. it's not time yet. So I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep doing the works of the Heavenly Father, and I'm not really going to worry about it right now. And they're like, all right, we'll, we'll go with you. But they're thinking, we're going we're to die. This is it, right? Confrontation is happening. So again, this is a turn in the Gospel of John where the conflict is heating up. Um, this is Jesus facing his own death, but also in this story, Jesus is facing the death of, of someone he loves. So let me pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at this in more detail. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we Pray that your spirit would meet us here. Um, we ask that you would help us. This is a hard subject for us. Um, for some of us, this is hard to even think about. And so we just pray that your spirit would meet us, comfort us, um, help us to hear what you want us to hear, um, and God, that you would teach us. We thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we think about death, what we see kind of a framework in the story just kind of unfolds naturally as we think of Jesus facing death. Um, first of all, is that Jesus allows death. Now, that's really hard, and we'll, we'll deal with that a little bit, but I think it's one of those things where it's kind of an idea that's introduced in a strange way in this passage, and then it's not dealt with until later. We'll, we'll read more of that later, later part, and that later part is kind of the main, main portion of the text, and that portion, we're going to see how Jesus faces death. Like, what does he do with death? We'll see Jesus facing death. And then we'll end with Jesus reversing death, right? That's, that's the happy ending we're looking forward to, but we kind of kind of trudge through some hard stuff to get to the end where Jesus reverses death with his friend. Um, so first of all, let's think about the idea that Jesus allows death. This is a hard teaching. Um, it's a hard idea. Um, Christians have debated this forever. Uh, this is often one of the main reasons that people give for not wanting to believe in God, right? The idea of evil, the idea of suffering, the idea of death, like, 
why would God allow this kind of world? That's a, that's a sticking point for a lot of people. And so I want to encourage you that we're going to kind of just scratch the surface today. This story isn't meant to exhaustively cover every explanation for that. And if you're particularly wrestling with that, I'd love to talk to you more about it. Um, there's a lot that can be said on the subject. There are a lot of other parts of Scripture that address this. But there is this one hard teaching, this hard idea here, that Jesus allowed this to happen. Um, now, there are kind of two ways that Christians think about uh, death and suffering and evil in the world. One is like God is so sovereign, he meticulously controls every event, right? And so a lot of people take great comfort in that because they're like, well, God is in control and God is good. So even though I don't like this bad thing that happened, I take comfort that God is meticulously, sovereignly controlling all events. I know for some of you that's great comfort. Um, a lot of people, though, focus on the good side, like, okay, God is really good and I can trust him, and he allowed this to happen, right? So those are kind of two different ways of talking about it. I'm going to use the phrase allow here not to side with anybody on the debate, but because that's how it appears in the text, okay? So in the text here, Jesus knows this thing is happening, and he stands back and lets it happen. Does that make sense? So I'm just kind of, I'm not trying to get into the debate of, you know, how do we talk about this? Because there's a whole lot more we could do on that. Again, we can talk about that offline if you want to talk about it later. But here, look at verse uh, 3. The sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now we know from context that Jesus did not mean he's not going to die. He means it's not, he's not going to stay dead. We know from the rest of the story. You'll get it when we read the rest of the story. But here Jesus is saying that that's not the end, right? It's not going to be death. There's going to be something else that's going to happen here. Look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, oh, excuse me, verse 5. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Isn't that crazy? That's like a couple of the craziest verses in John, right? And I think as Christians, we need to be able to kind of uh, let Scripture be hard when it's hard. Here we have a hard verse that something horrible happened and Jesus, because he loved them, delayed and, and let it happen. Again, I'm not trying to get into the philosophical debate of how meticulously is God involved, you know, in providence and all that. I'm just trying to say, either way, we've got the same problem, right? That's probably the better way to say it. No matter how you as a Christian talk about your Christianity and talk about the sovereignty of God and how he's involved in world events, we all have the same problem. We have the problem of like, well, why did God make this happen? Or why did God allow this to happen? Or why did God not intervene, right? No matter how you say that, you're left with the why, Right? Jesus allowed death to happen, and, and that's hard for us, especially, especially, listen to this, especially as modern 21st century Americans. We now live in a culture that more than any other culture in history, I would argue, or top 10 maybe, but, but arguably more than any other culture in history thinks that suffering sh should never happen, Right? Every other time in history, people are just like, yeah, that's, that's the world we live in. We live in a world of suffering. Like, it is what it is. But we live in a time now where, because of medical breakthroughs, great things, right? We, we want to push back suffering in the world, right? I think that's a Christian value. Christians, historically, are the ones that 
create hospitals and create schools and create orphanages. That's what Christians do, right? Christians move in to alleviate suffering. And we're going to see that reflected in the rest of the story. But I think that's swung so hard in our time and culture now that we're like, it's immoral that God would allow suffering at all. That's really, that's in the back of our heads and hearts. Even those of us that are committed to the scriptures and believe God is good. We just struggle with that. It's a tough problem. So I just, I just want you to see that this is clearly in the story, right? I'm not going to do a whole lot of explaining other than to say this is here, and it's hard. Jesus allowed this hard thing to happen, and what are you going to do with that, right? Um, I grabbed a picture here of someone crying. The, the future that we look forward to, the description of the end of all things, is given in Revelation 20 and 21, the, the final chapters of our holy book. And we have a picture there that all things will be made right and every tear will be wiped away. So that's an, imp- that's an important hope that we have. And, and I want you to hear that and know that. That's really important. But it doesn't solve that, that we live in a world of tears now, right? We live in a world of tears now and Je- Jesus allowed this death to happen. And even the weirdest part of it is he's, it's, it connects it with his love, Right? Jesus loved them. He loved them. He loved you. He loved me so much. There was this delay. And he allowed the illness to progress. He could have intervened, right? We've seen these other stories where Jesus was like, he's healed, boom, and he heals them, right? Back up even further, we see this pattern of Jesus healing because he's a healing God because he loves to bring redemption. He loves to wipe away tears, but he doesn't heal everybody right? That wasn't his mission when he was on earth. It was like this just secondary thing that just kind of pours out of Jesus because it's the character of God to heal, right? But that wasn't his primary mission. His primary mission, we've seen this in the last few weeks in John, his primary mission was to heal the separation we have between us and God so that we could have a, a permanent future healing that we look forward to, reconciliation with God, entering into a relationship of forgiveness, having our sins washed away, knowing that God sees us as a child. So we've got to reconcile that, right? Like, God is all for healing. God is all for redemption. The, the end of the story is wiping away all tears, but God allows tears and death and sin and sickness in the reality we're living in right now. And we, just, we have to wrestle with that. Um, the end of Genesis tells a story of Joseph, who a lot of people would, would point as kind of a figure that shows us what Jesus is like in a lot of ways, right? Not perfect, but... A lot of these characters throughout the Bible, they give us just an image. Sometimes it's called type, a a kind of pattern. This is what Jesus is going to be like. And so we see Joseph betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery. And in the end, when his brothers come to him after their fathers died, and they're like, basically, please don't kill us. He says, "What, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so, again, as Christians, we debate over, like, how to say that. How do you say that? Did God really intend it? Did did God manipulate it? Did God make it happen? Did God stand by while it happened? I don't know. You don't know either, okay? But we know that God had good intentions and good plans behind it. That's where we can rest. So, again, Genesis 50, 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's what we rest on. And I would also back up and say, if, if you have genuine questions about suffering, how God can allow this, no other religion has solved this. I would argue that there's a certain level where we're like, we don't have it all figured out, and that's okay. 
We've got a whole lot more figured out than any other religion or philosophy in the history of mankind. We have a God who meets us in our suffering. We have a God who enters into the suffering that we know. So, so I'm encouraged that even though we don't have exhaustive knowledge of why, we have a God who meets us in the midst of this death and suffering. And that's really where we're going with this next section. Jesus faces death, right? So he's going he's gonna to face it head on. He's going to enter in. Um, and we're going to see three things that I think are really helpful. We're going to see Jesus uh, bringing truth. Truth is helpful. We're truth people. We like to study the Bible. We think God's truth is important, and we need what God has revealed in the Scriptures to help us to make sense of the world. And Jesus brings truth to the situation. But we don't want to stay there. And Christians have this kind of uh, bad reputation of bringing truth and not empathy a lot of times to a painful situation. And we're going to see that Jesus brings a lot of empathy. He's not just a truth person. He also brings empathy. Uh, there was a Babylon Bee um, story. If y'all heard of the Babylon Bee, it's like a farcical Christian newspaper. It makes fun of bad Christians, basically. Um, and it had this little story that said that now researchers are thinking the friends of Job were first-year seminary students, right? <laughs> they were so excited about all that they were learning in seminary that they were just firing that at Job. Instead of really comforting him and weeping with him, they were just throwing the truth at him. So what we're going to see with Jesus is he brings truth, but he also gets visibly outraged at the situation, and he weeps with his friends as well. So we're going to see this whole multidimensional response. And what I think is really cool here is what we're going to see and how Jesus interacts with this circle of friends in Bethany is this is a model for small groups in Christian friendships. Okay? This is what they should be. So here's how we could think about it. The, the reason that you get in relationships of Christian discipleship, Christian friendships, small groups where you can pray with others and study the scriptures together, the reason you do that is so that you can face the death and suffering of this world. It's us working it out together in Christ. And so it's a really beautiful model here. So let's um, read the story picking up in verse 17. Verse 17, now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now this is really going to be pretty cool, and, and just pay attention to this. There's, there's Martha and Mary. If you remember from the other stories about Martha and Mary, Martha was the hardworking, responsible one, right? You remember that story? And Mary was the one that sat at Jesus' feet, who just wanted to relate with Jesus. And we see similar dynamics reflected in this story as well. Now, both sisters are going to say this same thing to Jesus, um, but they're, other than that, reacting differently, right? So they're both heartbroken that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. You see that reality. Both of them are going to say the same thing. I'll, I'll read it again. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They both say the exact same thing. Now, everything else is different. And so a lot of commentators would point out and say, see here, part of Jesus' different reaction is he's recognizing the need of the moment, right? Martha is coming to him, asking for truth, and he's giving her more truth, more doctrine, more teaching. Mary is just staying in the house, distraught and weeping, and he goes to her, and he weeps with her, right? So I think sometimes situationally, people need different things at different times. I think as Christians, we need it all, right? We need truth. We need the, the emotional outrage of, of the moment, and we need weeping and tears. We need all of that, right? 
Um, but here it's interesting to kind of just see how it unfolds slightly differently with the different circumstances. So she says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you, right? So she's entering into a I know conversation. I know truth. I know what you've taught me. I'm a student. I'm a learner. Let's talk about this. She's, she's bringing doctrine and teaching and truth into the conversation. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's like your, your brother's going to rise. And look at how she responds. He says, your brother will rise again. Verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's like, right, like I get it. I heard the sermon Dave preached where he said in the future, every tear's going to be wiped away. Like I know that, right? I know that teaching. We're headed toward, they, they understood we're headed towards a resurrection. That's the future, right? And so they knew this doctrine that I just taught you, that that's our hope, and that's one thing we can cling to. We know everything's going to be made right in the end. But right now, it's bad. So she's like, yeah, I know, I know, future stuff, yeah, great, Jesus, but right now, right now he's, he's dead, right? So she says, I know there will be this last day. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's saying there's something more than just that last day hope. There's something more present with, with me here. And this is a little part of the mystery of the kingdom we see throughout all the Gospels where Jesus talks about the kingdom future and the kingdom present. That's hard for us to understand as Christians, hard to reconcile. Well, one of the keys is that the, the kingdom exists where the king is. And Jesus is saying, I, I'm the resurrection, so resurrection is right here with you. Jesus is saying that, that his personhood is the resurrection. Do, do you see this? So he's not saying you're wrong. He's not like, no, Martha, there's not going to be a future resurrection. It's all now, right? And that's where some of us go with weird theology now. No, it's all now, nothing future. No, he's saying, yeah, future stuff for sure, but I'm right here right now. He's like, there's, there's some hope right here. He's saying he's present. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so again, this is where we can understand the doctrine that our hope is not just in, in current healing. Again, Christians heal. Christians build hospitals. Christians build orphanages. Jesus healed. Jesus cares for you. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is compassionate. We, as followers of Jesus, should be merciful, should be compassionate, but that's not our only hope. There's a, there's a greater hope of a though you die, yet you will live, of a future permanent resurrection. And so he's, he's pulling it into the present, but there's still the tension of, but there's this permanent healing that we're all looking forward to that can be found only in Jesus, only if we believe in Jesus, only if we trust in Jesus. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord. Well, he said, do you believe this? He, he pushes it on her. Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. She's like, yes, I believe this. She still doesn't really understand exactly what's going to happen, Right? But she's, she's getting more truth. It's starting to break in. She's like, okay, I, I believe you. I believe I can trust you. And I've said this again and again throughout John. We are like the first followers. We can, we can trust him and start following him, even though we don't exactly know where he's taking us. Right? We trust he's taking us into resurrection life. We don't understand exactly all the details. She still didn't quite understand exactly what was going to happen. We see that some from the conversation later. Let's look at the other part of the reaction here. Look at verse 28. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. 
And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Do you see that? They're both saying the same thing. And I think, again, this shows us, like, it's universal. Whether you're a Martha or a Mary, that, that's the sticking point, right? Like, death, why? Why, Jesus? Why did you allow this to happen? And Jesus talks to her. So, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, a lot of translations will say, um, deeply moved is not going quite far enough. It's, it's typically a, an anger word. Um, it's like a shaking outrage is kind of the idea. Uh, this is how I would say it. This is how I would paraphrase it. Jesus, the perfect man, 100% God, 100% man, who never sinned, uh, allowed himself to be visibly outraged and shaken by death. Isn't that amazing? And he knew he was going to fix it too, right? Um, so I, th- I think for us, this is really helpful. We see, okay, for me to follow Jesus doesn't mean I'm a stoic that is like unruffled by anything. That's not exactly what it means to follow Jesus. We are called to a supernatural peace, but even in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, where Paul talks about that peace that we have, the supernatural peace that guards our heart in Christ, it's not like some kind of weird guru floating meditating disconnected from the world kind of peace it's a it's a wrestling with death peace here we see jesus physically outraged and troubled by death and in philippians 4 through 6 7 um, it says don't be anxious but basically when when you are pray so that's what that looks like in the christian life the, the example of the psalms i think is always the most helpful the psalms are like why, God, why? How long? Where are you? When will you save us? And, and there's this wrestling back and forth with God. Yet, yet I will trust you. Yet I will praise you. Yet you are good. And so we see this dynamic in the life of Jesus. He's absolutely perfect. He has no trust problem at all. He knows not only is God the Father going to solve this, he knows he's going to solve it, right? Like he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from death, and yet he's visibly moved. He's outraged. He's shaken. He says in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Raise your hand if you've memorized any scripture. Anybody here memorized any scripture? This is something we really value. If, when I first became a believer, I had a guy meet with me and mentor me. He really helped me to memorize a lot of scripture. I've recommended this before. I would recommend the, the navigators have a, a memory system. It's called the topical memory system where you can memorize key scriptures. Man, I would really encourage you to do that. It's really helpful to have Scripture lodged in your brain and in your heart when hard times come. Really beneficial. Memorize Scripture. And to, to get a win under your belt, let's start with John 11.35, okay? John 11.35, say that to me. John 11.35. Jesus wept. You got it, you got it. See, you can do this. You can memorize Scripture. And this is really amazing. I, I make light of it, but this is an amazing verse, Right? Jesus, who was about to raise him from the dead, he could have just said, hey guys, it's cool. No, don't worry about it. Like, I got this. He raises him from the dead, right? But he, he faces death. He enters into death. He like moves into 
their pain with them. He weeps with them. I hope you see how amazing that is. I think John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept, is the primary answer we give for the, what philosophers call the theodicy problem, for sin and suffering. That's the primary answer. As I said, there are a lot of other ways we can talk about this. There are a lot of other things we can do, but Jesus wept. People are like, how can a good God allow blah, blah? Jesus wept. Jesus entered into the sin and suffering. And again, it doesn't answer every question we have. It doesn't like nail it all down perfectly, but no other religion or philosophy does. This is more beautiful and more profound than anything else that the world has to offer. Jesus wept. He, he entered in. So John eleven thirty five. 35, say it one more time. Oh, sorry, you said both parts. Okay. Say John eleven thirty five. 35. Say Jesus wept. Okay, you've got it. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. People ever say that about you? I'm really afraid people could never say that about me because I am so unflappable, right? That's something I've been repenting of for the last 10 or 20 years as a Christian as I started to realize, like, Jesus gets angry. Jesus cries, right? Jesus reacts to sin and suffering in this real world. And often for me as a man, especially kind of the way we're taught manhood should look, a lot of times as men, we, we think being a man means turning off our emotions. But Jesus is willing to enter in and react to that. So, um, Women, this happens to you too, but I think primarily this is a problem that men struggle with more than women. Uh, but for all of us, we can just say, no, I'm going to turn, I don't want to hurt, so I'll turn off my emotions. And that keeps you from entering in other people's pain and loving them and meeting where they are. So, so Jesus models this for us. And they're like, see how he loved him? Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you see that? So that same theodicy question is still there. It's not like it's some new thing philosophers just came up with in the 70s or something, you know. It was already there. Couldn't he have stopped this from happening? Why? Why the process? Why did Jesus allow this? What, what is that about? And again, we don't get meticulous answers to that. But we get a God who meets us in our pain. Verse 38. Well, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. Verse 37. So three parts that I want to point out. Um, we see Jesus meeting with truth. He, he teaches Martha. We see him expressing outrage. He's disturbed or deeply moved, as that's translated in, in brimomai in the Greek. It's this word, like I said, that's usually an anger or usually a word used for like chewing somebody out. So it's this kind of aggressive word. So he's physically shaken. He's teaching truth and he's weeping. Three reactions. Again, I think this is a model for what our small groups and Christian friendships should look like. Do you have friends that you can do those three things with? Do you have a safe group, a small group, a Bible study, a, a collection of two or three Christian friends that you're connected with where you can do those things, where you can talk about real truth, hard realities and truth and what the Scripture says about the resurrection and death and suffering. You can talk about truth. You can wrestle with truth. Do you have friends and a circle of people where you can be visibly upset, right? Or is that not allowed? And can you weep together? There's uh, some examples of this. I grabbed a picture, just kind of visually give us this, this woman's like calming this man who's crying. It's kind of a there, there moment. I thought when I found the picture, maybe he's crying because of his shirt. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, whatever the case may be, we have different kinds of struggles that we enter in, right? That was just a little light moment because this is a hard subject. Uh, but we, f we face all kinds of difficulties, right? Usually it's more than just a bad shirt choice. Usually, you know, we're sick. 
or some significant relationship, there's hurt, abuse from our past, um, difficult things we're facing. And as Christians, we are to meet each other there. We are to move towards each other the way we see Jesus doing. So again, this is, this is a model for us. Jesus brings the truth. Um, a helpful truth verse for death and suffering is 1 Thessalonians 4.13. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. It's complex wording. Basically saying, grieve, but don't grieve without hope. Right? So that's Paul bringing truth just to the process of grieving. Hey guys, it's right and good to grieve, but don't grieve without hope. We actually have resurrection hope. The whole discussion that Jesus had with Martha, right? Truth matters, but let's not just be truth people, right? Let's not be Job's comforters that are like, the world has fallen apart for you. Let us preach at you, right? Like that's sometimes what we do. Like, let me tell you all the verses I know about this. We, we need to also do what we see here, the, the anger, the outrage at death. Yeah, this is, this is frustrating. We live in a world of death and sickness and pain, right? We need to be moved to outrage and anger at that as we see in Jesus. Um, and we see this model in the Psalms. We see the outrage of the psalmist. Psalm 13 is a good one. Psalm 13, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. We see this movement throughout the Psalms. I picked out one that really highlights it. But this is a common movement in the Psalms. The Psalms are the worship book of the Bible. The Psalms are the personal prayer and devotion book of the Bible. The Psalms are the counseling book of the Bible, right? They're used for all three of those purposes. And in all three of those kinds of dynamics, we're, we're wrestling between our outrage and a God that we can trust, difficult circumstances. We're bringing those things together in the Psalms. And then finally, the weeping, Romans 12:15. One I quote a lot, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We, we meet people in their pain and in their suffering. Are you willing to be moved, to weep, to cry, to be sad with others? Or is your whole life constructed so that you can avoid feeling bad? Right? As Americans, I think we're in danger of constructing bubbles around us so we never feel bad, we never enter into pain, we never enter into grief. And that's not who Jesus was. Jesus left the comforts of his suburb and entered into our world of death and pain. And so we see in this next section then how Jesus reverses death, the, the happy ending, so to speak. Let's look at verse 38. Verse 38 says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, that's that outrage word, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Uh, verse 38, let's pause there for just a minute. Let's just listen to a podcast and a guy who actually studies the science of creativity. Um, and he said, a lot of times creativity comes from anger. Isn't that interesting? There's this uh, interesting dynamic they find just in the way human beings operate. There's something in us that's gotta be bothered about the brokenness of the world, right? And so that's part of the tension we live in is we're at peace, the supernatural peace of, of Philippians 4, 6 through 7, not because we magically transported to peace, but because in our anger and outrage at the world, we've prayed and we've had God meet us supernaturally and bring peace to us in this world. But it's appropriate to start out with some outrage. This is not the way things are supposed to be. That's the biblical storyline, right? Go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
and then recognize that the entire book of Genesis is like, yeah, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's like things are messed up, but God is meeting us in this messed up world. And that's part of what we see here. Okay, so I shouldn't listen to so many podcasts. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. She's like, I, we don't want to do that. It's not a good idea, Jesus Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. This is one of those prayers that Jesus gives for the benefit of those around him. He's just making sure to connect the dots if you want to see where, where this is coming from, read the second half of John 5. We, we looked at that several weeks ago. And in the end of John 5, Jesus was like, I only do what the Father does. I am one with the Father. I only do Father things because I'm his perfect son and we have perfect unity. So th throughout the Gospel of John, this has been a really important theme. We talk about the Christian uh, doctrine of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being in perfect communion, perfect oneness. That's reflected throughout this book. And so Jesus is praying like, Father, this is about you and me. This is not just about me as some sort of wizard or miracle worker. This is about my oneness with you, Father. So this is Jesus doing God things. And that's a really important, important piece of this whole puzzle in, in the Gospel of John. I go back and reread the end of John chapter 5. And where Jesus goes with that, is he's like, yeah, I do the mighty works of the Father. You're even going to see resurrection. You're going to even see the Son calling people out of their grave, right? So he's telegraphing that at the end of John chapter 5. And here he's, again, reflecting that in his prayer. Father, I'm praying this just so they know we're, we're one. We're on the same team. I'm here doing your stuff. Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, then he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind and let him go. And people like to point out, you know, the comparison and contrast with Jesus coming out of the grave, right? Lazarus stumbles out of the grave like wrapped up still in the linens. Jesus, it, it, it appears much more miraculous than that, right? Like he's gone. He folds up the, the head cloth. He lays it to the side. He doesn't need people to unwrap him, right? But still, there's this beautiful picture of the resurrection of Lazarus stumbling out, of Jesus giving life. Verse 45 says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Again, a lot of, a lot of uh, authors and commentators on John say this is the seventh sign. This is like the final big sign that then led to this week where the Jews wanted to kill him and eventually did. Right? This was the big sign. And that's really what the rest of John 11 is like. Um, basically, they have a trial without Jesus. They decide they are going to kill him. They put a bounty on his head. All of this is decided at the end of John here. And so what that shows us is that Jesus is the one who brings resurrection into our life, but that costs Jesus his life, right? When you back up and look at John 11, this is so beautiful, this is so amazing. Jesus brings us life. He brings resurrection to Lazarus. He's proving who he is. And what does that do? That puts in this, uh, this chain of events, it starts this clock ticking where they're like, we're definitely going to kill him. 
There'd been threats before. There'd been warnings before. You know, at the beginning of the story, the disciples were like, oh no, Jesus, they want to, you know, they, they're already recognizing they want to kill him, but there's an actual court decision made at the end of the section where the high priest prophesies, you know what, guys? It'd be better for one to die for the people than for all the people to die. And Caiaphas, it says, is prophesying even though he doesn't realize it, right? Caiaphas, the evil high priest, just wants to hold on to power and wants to eliminate Jesus as a competitor for power that these Jewish leaders hold on to. But John is clear, yeah, Caiaphas was actually prophesying something true. He, he was thinking about it in a different way. But yeah, it really is good for Jesus to die for the sins of many. I, I grabbed a picture here of, of Jesus being nailed to the cross. Throughout the New Testament, um, a summary for how we're saved is often uh, the death of Jesus or the cross. Sometimes it's said the blood of Jesus. And what we see really is a, is a package deal. Um, the New Testament, when you read all of it, is very clear that those are all just like little uh, abbreviations for all that Jesus accomplished. So I just want to nail this home to you because Jesus is saying really his hope and his goal is that you would believe in the Son of God and, and yet you die still will live. And so you're dying. I'm dying, right? There's probably diseases in us right now we haven't discovered yet. There's stuff at work in us. Natural old age is happening. Thing, things are going on and we're progressing towards death. And yet, if you believe in Jesus, you, you believe in his death, him being nailed on the cross as your substitute, and his resurrection that proves he really is the Son of God, the King of the universe, if you trust him, then he gives that life to you. The, the picture is an exchange. It's that he, he takes your sin and he gives you his resurrection life. That's the promise that we have in the gospel. That's what the final sign is about. It's this beautiful picture of how uh, Jesus conquers death for us. Um, we're singing this song today about the resurrection. Um, here's part of the lyrics. It's that the resurrected king is resurrecting me. And I love the present tense of that. Paul talks about this in Philippians. He says that it's through our suffering, through the difficulties that we go through as we trust Jesus, that his resurrection power becomes real to us. And so I want to encourage you, if you've structured your life so that all you're doing in life is avoiding suffering, you're actually also avoiding the resurrection power of Jesus becoming real in your life. I want to encourage you to not be afraid of suffering, to recognize that nobody wants it, nobody pursues suffering, right? Like, don't go running after it, but don't be afraid of it either, because Paul says that, that's how we know the resurrection power of our King resurrecting us in the present tense as we look forward to that day when he will wipe away every tear and every pain. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you give us resurrection life through Christ. Thank you that you are a God who meets us in our pain and suffering, and we, we pray that you'd help us. Lord, help us to have uh, good answers when we're struggling, when our friends are struggling, uh, but more than truth and answers, Lord, help us also uh, to be willing emotionally to meet people where they are, to be honest with you as we see in the Psalms, to pray. Lord, help us to wrestle with this as we trust you. And as we trust you, help us to experience this present tense reality of you resurrecting us. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.